first uh, grace and peace in the new year. It's uh, it's neat to be starting another one, and I pray I pray especially this year personally for unity that we would just be we would be filled with the spirit of unity, one mind, one voice, one spirit, in carrying on with the work of the Lord. There were a couple of prayer requests just this morning about brothers and sisters struggling with cancer. There are several people here this morning who have been through life and death battles with cancer and who have survived by God's mercy. One person here has had two kidney transplants. Others here have had open-heart surgeries and other very intensive procedures without which they would have died. Each of them has a different story, but all those stories have one very important thing in common. Every one of those people endured great hardship and pain in order to get past those grievous illnesses. Now, what does that have to do with uh, parenting children? Well, if the effects of the curse that threaten the physical well-being of men and women are overcome for a little while only through great pain, then what of the effects of that same curse that threaten the spiritual well-being of men and women? Do you suppose that things like foolishness and immorality and self-indulgence, things like unforgiveness and resentment, bitterness and anxiety all of which are the ingrained habits of our old sin nature, will be overcome painlessly? And how about that most foundational of all sins? Pride. The pride that makes us trust our own understanding and refuse to fully believe what God has told us. Can that be overcome without pain? If you examine the accounts in the Old Testament of how God dealt with men like Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and David and countless others, you find over and over again that His work to move men from foolishness to wisdom, from unbelief to belief, from selfishness to sacrificial love, and from sin to godliness, that work always involved great pain. For the student. Those accounts are filled with human failures that God overcomes only through the most painful of lessons. And the same was true of his dealings with Israel as a nation at the corporate level. See, God's classroom, in which he equips us for eternity and makes us useful for him now, is a really rough classroom. It's a very hard curriculum. In fact, Hebrews 12 likens it to a scourging, a very painful beating. So again, what does all that have to do with God's design for raising kids? Everything. God's calling to parents is a very demanding assignment to instruct and to discipline our children as His agents. Because ultimately, our kids don't belong to us, they belong to Him. All life proceeds from God and belongs to God. And in parenting, as in all other aspects of godliness, the way we act as agents of God is by 
following as fully as possible the pattern that we behold in his dealings with us. We love as he has loved us. We forgive as he has forgiven us. We serve as he has served us. The lesson plan by which God moves us from foolishness to wisdom is painful and difficult. So it stands to reason that our assignment as parents is going to involve imposing some pain on our children. And the book of Proverbs makes it clear that that's exactly what God intends. Before we proceed, I want to point out a little bit about how discipline fits into the larger assignment of childbearing as God defines it. In Ephesians 6 verse 4, Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Discipline and instruction. Now, I've approached those two critical components of child-rearing kind of in reverse because a few weeks ago when we had the last uh, message in this series on Proverbs, we talked about instruction, about imparting God's wisdom to our children, passing down what we've received from Him. Today, we're going to examine the other half of that Ephesians 6-4 assignment, discipline. Now, those are not two separate steps. They are very, very heavily intertwined. Because the whole point of discipline is to burn in godly instruction and turn it into godly behavior. In effect, it's to work ourselves out of a job so that our kids eventually embrace godly wisdom for themselves and act in keeping with that wisdom. But wisdom is not just a way of seeing and understanding things. It's a lifestyle of submission to God's way. So again, the point of discipline is to match up right understanding with right behavior. Discipline includes punishment for wrong attitudes and wrong behavior. But it's more than just punishment. It's interesting that Hebrews 12 is perhaps the most comprehensive statement in the Bible about how God disciplines us as his redeemed children. And that great chapter starts with the image of a foot race, a marathon. And then it proceeds to talking about God's corrective discipline. You might think of the the first part of that, the marathon part, as the discipline of obedience, and the second part, the scourging, as the discipline of correction. See, there's discipline involved both in changing bad behavior and in implementing good behavior. Both are difficult. Both involve some pain. Frankly, I think I'd prefer a good caning to running a 26-mile marathon, but The Proverbs has a lot to say about God's design for disciplining our children. And what God tells us is nothing at all like what the world tells us on that topic. I should mention at this point, as I did at the beginning of the series, that Proverbs presents to us principles of life, not guarantees of results. There is much about those principles that is certain. When we embrace the wisdom that comes to us from God and we act accordingly, we can be absolutely certain that we will be blessed as God measures blessing. But blessing as God defines it doesn't always look like blessing to us. Proverbs isn't about us manipulating God to get things the way we like them to be. It's about God making us holy. 
So when Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old he will not depart, even when he is old he will not depart from it, that doesn't mean that in every case, if you're diligent to raise your kids as God instructs you to raise them, they're going to turn out great. What it means is that godly instruction is indispensable to raising godly children. God has not put it within our power to control the heart of another human being, and that includes our kids. If your kids are all grown up, and if they were wonderful examples of submission and godliness from the get-go, you would do well to remember whom to credit, and it's not you. Rejoice and be thankful that God used you as an instrument to impart wisdom to your kids. But don't break your arm patting yourself on the back. And don't be quick to judge those whose children don't receive wisdom as readily as yours did. I'm not at all saying it doesn't matter how you raise your kids or that your actions have no bearing on how they turn out. If that were the case, this whole message would be irrelevant. Every passage we're looking at this morning says God powerfully uses parents in the lives of their children. But we must never confuse the instruments with the source. We're instruments. God is the source. He's the only one who accomplishes any real change in our children, not us. And you know what that makes us? Dependent. And it better make us prayerful. (laughs) All right. Let's consider for a moment what Proverbs tells us about the scope of the task of child-rearing. What's the starting point, and what must we do to be useful as God's instruments to move our kids from that starting point to God's goal? Well, here's the starting point, and it's not pretty. Proverbs 22.15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And the word bound up means it's knit together. It's tied up like a rope tied in a knot. It's amazing to me how revolutionary those nine words are and how foundational they are to a biblical worldview. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The world has this completely upside down. And the ramifications of that are are far-reaching. The culture tells us, in essence, that children start out pure and moral. They start out with the simplicity of wisdom to which we as adults would do well to aspire. You ever heard someone say, get in touch with your inner child? Gag me with a fork. (laughs) Paul says, when I was a child, I thought as a child, I reasoned as a child, I spoke as a child, then I became an adult and I put away childish things. The world is saying to us that children start out good and adults corrupt them. And that's a big part of why we find ourselves surrounded by a culture that worships youth and despises age that could not possibly be more wrong than it is. But God's take on things flips that completely around. God declares that children start out fools, foolish, excuse me. They start out, you know, they start out fools too till they get saved. And that parents have the God-given responsibility to act as His agents to drive out that foolishness and replace it with godly wisdom. So how do we do that? How do we drive out wisdom and instill, uh, drive out foolishness and instill wisdom in our children? Well, the second half of that verse, 
gives us a critical piece of that answer. It says the rod of discipline will drive it, drive that foolishness far from your child. Now the image of the rod shows up all over Proverbs. Here's a couple of other verses. Proverbs 13, 24. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Proverbs 23, 13, and 14. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you beat him with the rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with the rod and deliver his soul from Sheol. I'm going to start a business putting that on t-shirts for teenagers. You think I'll have a good, a good run with that? The term rod refers to a long stick that could be used for a number of things. And it has a positive connotation in Psalm 23, in which David, David sees God as his perfect shepherd, the one whose rod and staff give him comfort. It's the same word. But in most passages, the rod is an implement used by one person to subdue or to correct another person as a master correcting a disobedient slave. In Proverbs, I believe the word rod is used to represent parental discipline in all its forms. And I think that's what we see in the parallelism in those second two passages. The word rod is used in synonymous parallelism with the word discipline. They're used as if they mean the same thing. And the first thing we should note is that the way Proverbs uses this image shows us that a parent's use of the rod of discipline is going to be very unpleasant for the child. In 22.15, it drives out foolishness that is bound up with the child's heart. That doesn't sound like something easy to accomplish. In 23.13 and 14, it's described as an implement for beating a child. And the Hebrew word to beat is the word that's used to describe striking or smiting an enemy. Now, that doesn't mean that your child is your enemy. What it means is that the kind of discipline that's being spoken of here is not a love tap. It hurts. And we're not talking about child abuse here. Let's try to dispel that right up front. As we will see as we proceed, God calls parents always to discipline their children in love for the child's well-being, not for the parent's convenience and definitely not for the child's harm or destruction. But the notion that you can raise wise and godly children without inflicting any pain on them is utterly ridiculous from a biblical perspective. I believe the image of the rod of discipline is rendered meaningless if it's never talking about physical, painful punishment, corporal punishment. In Psalm 89, which mirrors the covenant promises that God gave to David in 2 Samuel 7, God told David that if his sons who followed him on his throne forsook God's commandments and his way, God would visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. You know what that means? It means the beating left marks. God repeatedly in the Old Testament likens the means that he uses for disciplining his people to a rod by which physical punishment is administered, and it's a rod that hurts and it leaves welts. Now, God did not literally beat the Israelites and their kings with physical rods, did he? 
but he could and actually did impose physical chastisement on Israel through men. When the Assyrians took Israel away to captivity and later the Babylonians invaded Judah and took them away into captivity, there was a lot of physical pain involved for the people of God. Go look up in a Bible encyclopedia some of the pictures that were drawn on pottery from that time of what was done to the inhabitants of those lands. Often, the rod of God's chastisement of his people seems to be far more literal than it is figurative. At other times, it's pretty clear that it's a metaphor for other kinds of painful punishment that are not physical. Some Bible teachers, pretty much all of whom are modern Bible teachers, treat it as a metaphor in all cases and thereby dismiss any notion that the Bible instructs parents to spank their children to employ corporal punishment as a necessary instrument of discipline. In other words, they say, if God doesn't beat us with a literal rod, then we're certainly not supposed to spank our children. There must be more creative ways to discipline children. And a corollary to that theological sleight of hand is the idea that physical spankings are barbaric and unproductive. But that line of logic has a gaping hole in it. It assumes that God's discipline of us and thus our discipline of our children, according to his example, are intended to be less hurtful than a physical spanking. Less hurtful than a behind-the-woodshed kind of corrective act of discipline. In other words, they're saying... If spanking a child is barbaric, then doing anything that is more hurtful than that is even more barbaric. But the notion that God never disciplines his children in a manner that's more severe than a physical spanking is once again utterly ridiculous from a biblical perspective. Which would you say is worse? Getting a vigorous spanking for a few seconds or spending a year and a half inside a walled city, heavily populated, when every source of food and water has been cut off and the city's being besieged by a mighty army. That's what God did to his people in Jerusalem from 589 to 587 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar sent his army and the, and the vicious mercenary army of the Chaldeans down to take that city a year and a half. And the stuff that went on inside those walls is described a very long time before that in Deuteronomy. And if I were to read it to you here, some of you would be offended. If we are such wimps that we think a painful spanking is barbaric, then we make God out to be the biggest barbarian of all. But the reality is just the opposite. God understands far more than we do that holiness is infinitely more desirable than freedom from hardship and pain. And he knows exactly what it takes to turn our hearts so that we experience real life and real blessing as his redeemed children. And he will do what it takes to bring us to that blessing. Even the most grievous pain that God inflicts on his elect is the very opposite of barbaric uh, barbaric or malicious. It's merciful. It's gracious. It's compassionate. It's loving. Years ago, when I was in Oregon for a friend's custody hearing, 
the judge made a very large issue out of the fact that the father, who was being sued by the mother to give up custody of the children, believed in using corporal punishment, spankings. And the mother told the judge that she did not. I happen to know that that was not true, that she did spank her kids. But here's what astounded me. What what just blew my mind was when the judge said, here in Oregon, we have more creative ways of disciplining children than the barbaric practice of spanking. Can it be true that this is really the first generation in the history of mankind that is sensible enough to stop spanking its kids? No, the reality is this is the first generation in the history of mankind that's foolish enough to stop spanking its kids. Now, some of you are already thinking that I'm making too big a point of spanking. I'm talking about spanking as the least of the kinds of discipline that parents have to impose on their kids in terms of intensity. If the most fearsome instrument in your toolbox for enforcing good behavior in your children, especially your young children, is a timeout in their room where all their toys reside, then I grieve for your children. Proverbs 23, let's look back at that last verse on this slide. Proverbs 23, 13 and 14. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you beat him with the rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with the rod and deliver his soul from Sheol. Does that sound like a timeout? Does discipline have to be painful to be effective? That question is not about spanking or not spanking. It's much broader. It's about whether discipline, in whatever form it takes, has to hurt in order to accomplish its purpose. When a child is very young, spanking is often the most effective and the most loving way to accomplish correction of wrong behavior. It's quick. It gets their attention. If it's painful, it generally changes their behavior. As children get older, there are, of course, more options available to a parent to correct bad behavior and to encourage wise behavior. And sometimes those options are more effective than physical spankings, especially when you've got a kid like one of mine who he doesn't have any fear of riding his longboard at 50 miles an hour and crashing and peeling skin off his body and then going back up to the top of the hill and doing it again. You think a spanking's going to bother him? Withholding valued privileges, requiring that homework or chores be done before the fun stuff, taking away cell phones or visits with friends when house rules have been violated. There are many ways to accomplish changes in behavior. But one thing that they all have in common, if they're worth considering, is they all hurt. Even self-discipline involves pain and sacrifice. Ask our brother Al Angel if running marathons for the last several decades has been an easy undertaking. (laughs) And the same is true of things like learning the habit of diligently studying God's Word daily and the habit of fervent and faithful prayer. They're all hard to get to, but they're all exceedingly valuable. One of the most grievous symptoms of the world's embrace of foolishness is that it equates hurt with harm. To put it another way, it equates pain with curse and pleasure with blessing. But you know what you call the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain? You call it hedonism, not Christianity. 
Our godless and foolish culture says if it hurts, it's not just unpleasant, it's bad. It's evil. And so for a parent to intentionally inflict pain on his child, any kind of pain, is considered just plain malicious. But here again is what God says on that subject. Look at verse 11, Hebrews 12. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now according to that verse, how much of that which God calls discipline is sorrowful? All of it. By God's reckoning, if it doesn't hurt, it's not discipline. If it's not sorrowful, it is of no value to drive away foolishness and to burn in wisdom. By the way, I'm convinced that that's one of the reasons that fathers must lead when it comes to the process of child-rearing. When a dad caves into a mother's tender sensibilities about subjecting their children to pain that's sufficient to change behavior, that short-circuits the process of child-rearing and it sets the children to using one parent against the other, which is not good for the marriage. In some marriages, it's the dad who's squelching that process. The dad is a wimp. But more often, it's the mom. And it's not because she's a wimp. It's because she's a mother. See, God wired men one way and he wired women another way. And both are needful when it comes to raising kids. But there's a reason that God commands the husband and father to lovingly lead and commands the wife and children to respectfully submit to his leadership. If you're a single mom, it's a tough road because you've got to cover both those bases. Do it God's way. He'll give you the grace to do what he requires. One of the most important things that has to be settled in premarital counseling is whether or not the prospective wife is willing to submit herself to her husband's authority in the, manner, in the matter of child-rearing and whether both are willing to submit to God's clear instruction regarding that critical stewardship when it comes to discipline. If you can't manage to agree with God's division of labor in marriage and with God's clear instruction about the sacred task of disciplining your children, then don't get married. What's at stake if you get this wrong? If you do it your way, man's way, instead of God's way. Well, we already, we've already seen that it's the d- difference between wisdom and foolishness for your children. Proverbs 22.15 and several others. It's also, by the way, the difference between life and death. We don't think of it in those terms very much, but this is what God's Word tells us. Proverbs 22, excuse me, Proverbs 19.18. Discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. And then Proverbs 23, 13 and 14. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you beat him with the rod, he will not die. But you know what might make him die? He says, you shall beat him with the rod and deliver his soul from Sheol. See, your child's not going to die from the pain of godly discipline, but he might die from the lack of it. You think that never happens? What do you think God would think if you allowed that to happen because you refused 
to deal with your children as he deals with you. When I was a kid, if I grabbed something off a store shelf without asking, I got popped very soundly in the backside right there in front of the world. There were no three strikes and you're out. I already knew where my mom stood on these issues, so I was down two strikes before I ever reached out my hand. The instant negative reinforcement from the spanking and the embarrassment of getting it in front of other people quickly convinced me that my mother had the upper hand. And I can assure you that scenario was not often repeated because I knew who was the boss. And I was really happy with that. Now, if my mother or anyone else did that today, some other mom would probably call CPS on her cell phone while her kids disassembled the store. But I have thanked God a thousand times for having a father and a mother whose love I never doubted for a second and whose authority I never had to question, not once. Because the boundaries were crystal clear, there was no confusion on my side of things. And that clarity was very freeing. You know what? I loved to go shopping with my mom. When I was a kid, when I was a teenager, when I was a young adult, I loved being anywhere with my mom. We were good friends. But she wasn't my buddy. She was my mom. And I knew who was the boss. Her combination of steadfast love and unflinching discipline gave me what I can only describe as peace in my relationship with her. And you know what? That follows very well from Hebrews 12.11. It says, all discipline seems to be joyful for the moment. Not, it seems to be sorrowful for the moment, not joyful. But to those who have been tested by it, in the end, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. There's a lot of peace for the child when it's done right. Learning to humbly and willingly submit to God-appointed authority, parental authority, or other authority, instead of rebelling against it, is a life-saving proposition. Every time my mother popped me in a store when I was little or told me to take off my belt so she could spank me with it at home, insult to injury, she was saving my life. And I thank God that she had the courage to raise me on God's terms instead of mine. She was the one who did most of the disciplining, but she did it under my dad's authority, and he was in complete agreement. He was old school, so back then, dads pretty much handed a lot of that off to the moms. I think it's, by the way, I think it's very constructive and necessary. It's very good that dads are more involved in that process. They must be. We looked, when we talked about godly instruction, we saw that the predominance of the verses about childbearing are given to fathers. Okay, I'm going to look a little closer at one particular verse here before we kind of wrap up. And I've got another topic, but that verse is Proverbs 22.6, and I, I call it a stretched verse. It's one of the most well-known and often cited verses in Proverbs, especially for parents. It says, train up a child in the way that he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. There's a very popular twist on the first half of that verse that says that the phrase, the way he should go, means in keeping with the child's uniqueness as a human being. In other words, we should study our children and we should tailor our discipline and training of them very carefully to their particular bent or personality. 
Now, I absolutely agree that parental discipline should be approached prayerfully and thoughtfully, not impulsively or capriciously. And I agree that discipline won't always take the same form with every child, even within a given family. But this verse doesn't make those distinctions. Proverbs doesn't say, use a rod on your strong-willed child and a feather duster on your compliant child. It certainly doesn't say that a parent should teach one way of life to one child and another way of life to, to the other child. It would be a huge deviation from the tenor of the book of Proverbs to talk about focusing heavily on a child's particular point of view or personality or anything else that's about the child instead of being about God. Proverbs 22.15 tells us that what the child brings to the table is foolishness. Is that going to be what guides your approach? Proverbs presents only two ways or paths, the way of death and the way of life. Man's way is the way of death. God's way is the way of life. God is not concerned with the child's unique way any more than he is within adults. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not depend on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. We don't set the terms and our children certainly don't set the terms. It's commendable for parents to know their children well. Most loving parents know their children a whole lot better than the children know themselves. (laughs) But the one determinative priority for every parent is to know God. To know His way. And make sure that's what you're teaching your children. The second half of that verse also carries a certain amount of baggage. It says, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. I've been guilty along with a few million other Christian parents of thinking that that means a child might not embrace what you're teaching him when he's young, but in most cases, when he gets older, he will. But in the interest of being true to the text, I need to point out that the word that's translated even in that verse can and in most occurrences does mean also or additionally. In other words, the verse would mean not only when a child is a child, but even much later, when he's old, he will not depart from the wisdom that he has been, that he's received from his parents. And the parallelism that's, that's used in that verse, like in so many verses in Proverbs, is synonymous parallelism. In other words, the second half of the verse amplifies or extends what's said in the first. So, in both cases, I have to conclude that it's saying, The wisdom a child gains through godly training in his youth will stay with him even when he's older. Now, I say that to be true to the text. I certainly don't think that means that some kids don't take longer to embrace wisdom than others. Nor does it mean that some kids won't suffer a lot of self-imposed and God-imposed pain before they come around to that wisdom. Many of the the adults here today could come up with a pretty long list of kids that fit that description from the history of this body, right? Kids who kicked against the goads, who resisted submission to God, maybe even into their 30s, 
and then came around and they're walking with the Lord today. Praise God that that happens as often as it does. It's not a guarantee. I believe that that phenomenon is just corroborating evidence that God's approach to child-rearing ultimately works because it's true and that more often than not, it produces wisdom in the child in God's perfect timing. And it's also corroborating evidence that we have an amazingly gracious and forbearing God. I want to wrap up with two indispensable ingredients to godly discipline that we find in Proverbs and elsewhere. The first is discipline your children with love. And the second is practice what you preach. Proverbs 13.24 says, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. That's a very strong contrast. Withholding discipline is not just unloving. It is equivalent to hate in the eyes of God. But the one who loves his child disciplines him diligently. Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves. Even as a father of the son in whom he delights. Do you see the spirit of that? God painfully, sorrowfully disciplines us because he loves us. He delights in us as his children, and that's the attitude. That's the motivation that, by which we discipline our children. Hebrews 12, we already saw it, but quoting back from Proverbs in uh, Hebrews 12, verse 6, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. God's style of child-rearing perfectly merges steadfast love with effective discipline. Now, because of our own sin and selfishness, we struggle to follow that perfect example, don't we? And at times, we catch ourselves dealing with our children less from love than from self-interest or misplaced fear. Our calling is to instruct and discipline out of love, out of a steadfast commitment to our children's well-being before God. When we violate that calling, we need to humble ourselves before God and before our children. And we need to repent. If you find yourself responding to your kids in self-serving anger or pride or fear instead of love, you know what you have to do? You have to ask your children to forgive you not make excuses for your sin. That's one of the most important things you will ever show your kids. The second indispensable ingredient is that we practice what we preach. Proverbs 20, verses 6 and 7 says, Many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man? A righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. Those verses speak of loyalty, trustworthiness, integrity. They're talking about the character of the heart, the quality of the heart of the man. And it says there are many men who declare of themselves that they have that kind of character. But there are few who actually do. The children that are blessed are not the ones whose parents talk about integrity. They're the ones whose parents walk in integrity, whose lives correspond with their instruction. 
Kids have a mind-bogglingly accurate radar for detecting hypocrisy in their parents. And that makes the task of child-rearing pretty tough sometimes because we're struggling with the same sins we're trying to correct in them. But the difficulty of the assignment doesn't change the assignment. And the assignment we have from God is to be holy because our God is holy. If we're not committed to walking the talk, then we shouldn't expect our kids to be either. A dad who tells his daughter to dress modestly and then is glued to the TV screen when scantily clad women are in front of his face is not going to be taken seriously. In fact, his daughter's probably going to dress the way she figures that her dad finds attractive. A mother who gives lip service to being gracious and forgiving, but who regularly gives vent to her own bitter resentments toward those who have wronged her, isn't going to get much traction when she tries to rebuke her daughter for her own bitterness. Parents, it is critically important that we know God's way and that we walk in His way. The single most important thing you will ever do for your kids is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strengths and to live as He commands as the outworking of that love. Deuteronomy 6. The last thing I'm going to say is make sure grace rules. We will all falter badly as parents. I'm thankful that God doesn't require me to tally up all the times I've messed up as a dad. That means grace has to rule. You know what Jesus said about us as parents in Matthew chapter chapter 6? He said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? There's His assessment of us as parents. Even when we do good things and give good gifts to our kids, we're evil. And because we struggle with sin and selfishness ourselves, it is a certainty that we're going to botch things up fairly often. And that means, I'll say it again, we have to apologize often to our kids. If you don't find yourself asking for your children's forgiveness on a fairly regular basis, you're probably not paying sufficient attention to the Holy Spirit's conviction of your sin. You and I won't be able to model perfect godliness for our kids. That's not going to happen. But we can and we must model a godly response to our own sinfulness and to our children's sinfulness that proceeds from knowing what we deserve and what we have instead been given in Jesus Christ. God hates sin. He doesn't leave it unpunished. But he put the eternal payment for our sin as believers on his son. Our God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and overflowing in steadfast covenant love and truth. He keeps loving kindness for thousands, and he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. I don't know if any of you have seen this movie. It's one of those kind of indie things that a lot of people haven't heard of. It's called Martian Child. It's about this man who adopts, a single man adopts this little autistic boy who's convinced that he's from Mars and he needs to get back. And the, as the relationship develops, it turns into a beautiful relationship between the man and the boy. And not everything the guy does is what I would do as a parent, but there's a lot of love there. And at the end, there's a blow-up between the boy and the, 
and the dad, the adopted dad. And so the boy goes up to the top of this water tower and he's waiting for the mothership. And the dad figures out where he is and he goes and he climbs way up that ladder and he goes up beside his son and he, he looks at him and he says, you need to know that I will never, 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 never leave you. Make sure your kids know that about you. Loving Father, you're the one who said to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And all we deserve from you is condemnation. But you, you saved us, you redeemed us, you called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And now, Lord, you see fit to use us as instruments to, to pass down the knowledge of you to our children. It's a daunting thing, Lord, from our perspective, but we know you are the one who gives us the grace to do it. And we know that you're the only one who really changes a heart. Teach us to, to love our children, to instruct them in your way, to discipline them firmly. It hurts us to, to bring any pain to them. But, Lord, we know it's necessary and it is good and it is loving. And we thank you, Lord, for what you have shown us of yourself. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.